0: All right. All the way from Los Angeles, we are joined by Alex Michelson, anchor of Fox LA News weeknights, 5, 6, 7, and 10. He's the host of California's only statewide political show, The Issue Is, and you can find him on YouTube, Alex
1: Michelson. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Really appreciate it and love what you guys do.
0: A podcast that combines sports, social media content, and life. I'm Jonah Ballo. I'm Keith Steckler. I'm Elliot Gerard We have experience in ad agencies and marketing, digital content across teams in the NBA, and creative for brands, teams, and athletes. Come on,
2: we need to be doing that. I was excited uh, to be on Alex's show a few months ago, and um, you know, wanted to wanted to bring you on. I mean, you have had such a great career, and. Um, really interesting, you know that what what you've done to build uh, build a lane for yourself in in the um, in the uh, arena that, that you work in in, in news, um, political news. Um, so we want to hear just more about your background and um, you know your thoughts on on the space, the new space as it is today with social media and how it's changed over the years.
1: Um, so why don't we just jump in and you uh, kind of tell us your origin story? First off, thank you guys uh, for having me. I really yeah. really appreciate it and appreciate the invite. Um, I'm a California boy, I grew up in uh, Agora Hills, which is a suburb of uh, Southern California. Um, I went to USC. At first, they didn't get, let me into the broadcast journalism school, but I was determined that I would find a way in, so I went there to study political science and ended up being able to transfer in, and I was really um, busy and big on internships while I was in college. Uh, we sort of had to lie about my age a bit for me to get my first internship which uh was at good day la at fox 11 los angeles i knew the executive producer there um, because his daughter had gone to high school with me uh, and i had shadowed him for like a career shadow day in high school Um, and then years later i ended up becoming the host of that show with him as the executive producer uh, which was just kind of wild uh, full circle thing Um, so i spent time doing that in college My main mentor was a guy named Conan Nolan, who was a reporter at KNBC, the the local um, NBC station in LA, their politics guy. He kind of took me under his wing, was real involved with him. He set me up with his friend, Steve Handelsman, who was in Washington. I spent time interning in Washington and spent time in the Senate and the White House and the Supreme Court. And so after all of that, I sort of put together pieces that ended up airing on different stations while I was in college. So my reel was different than most. Um, I had a friend that knew somebody in San Diego who was a general manager and ended up getting a job in San Diego right out of college, which was really lucky because I had this reel that looked unlike other people's reel. It took a chance on me. And within two weeks of me being there, their weekend morning anchor unexpectedly left. Um, And then at 21 years old, I was the weekend morning anchor in San Diego Um, and uh, was very lucky to be doing that. And then two years later, when my contract was up, I applied to come work in Los Angeles and and I started at ABC7 in Los Angeles and I was the youngest person that they had hired there I was 23 and that was challenging you know starting the next youngest person was 12 years older than me um and so that was a little challenging sort of figuring out a way to fit into that work culture um I was there for a while and loved it there but you know there was it was clear that I wasn't going to progress in terms of anchoring or doing other things there and so Seven years later, I, I left and went to Fox 11 Los Angeles where I've done a variety of things, uh, anchored in the morning, anchored in the evening. I've launched a syndicated political show. Um, and uh, and that's where I'm at now. And they've given me a lot of runway to do a lot of different kinds of things. And And along the way, I've been really lucky to, to meet and interview some of the, the biggest names in politics and entertainment and sports. I mean, I love myself I love 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 the intersection between politics sports and entertainment those are my favorite things and when we can find a way that all those things come together I'm, I'm really happy in that space
2: and and athletes and um, entertainers too, uh, have, have made such a difference in the um, in the political world uh, how do you think that's changed in your career overall you know obviously like with the LeBrons and and people like that and and even someone like Renee Montgomery you um, you know, really intersecting themselves into the the political lane that wasn't really there before. You didn't see that with Michael Jordan or anything.
1: Um, right. Well, you think about how the media has changed so dramatically. I think you guys are a few years older than me. When, when I was in college, um, YouTube started, I think in 2005, Facebook started right when I was a freshman. Like USC was one of the first schools that got Facebook, and at the time, it was literally just a face picture of your face, and that was it. And you know, and, and you think about at the time, even in two thousand eight, when when I started as a super young person at this station in San Diego, my first like sweeps piece, they said we want you to do a story to explain what social media is, uh, and so I did a, a profile on Facebook myspace and twitter was so new that we didn't even think it was worth including uh because it wasn't that relevant yet so you think about that which really wasn't that long ago i mean that's 12 13 years ago and in the span of that how dramatically things have changed and so back then you know if you think of the michael jordan era he can't communicate directly He's got to communicate through other reporters, he communicates through his ads, he communicates through all of these other things, through different TV shows about him, through Ahmad Rashad, his buddy, or Jim Gray, or whatever he's doing. But he doesn't have the ability like LeBron James does to literally hold up a camera and talk about whatever the hell he wants to talk about in that moment, whether it be social justice issues, whether it be his I Promise school, or whether it be that he just feels like rapping poorly to a song and wants everybody to watch it. (laughs) You know, like LeBron James can do any of that at any time, he can show off his cute kids. You know, and and them hanging out. He can do a TikTok dance with his family, um, or he can show off how good he is at basketball, or or that he can squat a lot of weight. You know, like and so that has empowered athletes to not have to go through all of those filters. And in reality, frankly, it's made athletes a whole lot less accessible to people like me. <laughs> you know, because back in the day, like a Magic Johnson, when he's playing, and and you see it. Magic Johnson, even if you see him now, his relationship with some of the older Los Angeles uh, sports reporters is very tight because when he was there, he really needed them and they were there and, and they, he communicated with them all the time. Now, a LeBron James doesn't need that. And so he largely ignores most of the reporters and doesn't give any access especially to local reporters i mean he he'll do what he has to do contractually with national reporters but does not go out of his way with local reporters because he doesn't need to go through that and and you see somebody like kobe bryant was probably one of the last ones of that era where the reporters were a little bit more important as terms of gatekeepers of the message and you see lebron is sort of one of the first of this this new era but that's even changed over lebron james's time and now the the athletes coming out it's it's just a very different relationship that they have but because of that i think it's given them a tremendous freedom to speak their mind and a platform to put public pressure on people things that happened in the bubble um you know really it was a landmark moment i think for athletes and activism a- and that they were able to create these vote centers around the country, uh, which very well could have been the difference in some of these close states. You know, you look at a place uh, like Georgia, where the, the vote total was, you know, so close. Um, and by the way, it was legitimate uh, because they recounted it like four different times, but it was really freaking close. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that activism of having a mass voting center at the basketball arena there, you know, that could have been the difference in in the whole election. How do you manage
0: coverage of politics now and how it has changed in terms of, you know, there are only select topics that usually get to the top of the call sheet, right? And, And especially on the national media stage of what they're going to cover, especially in the Trump era, when it is sort of a reaction to what's happening. There seems to be a need or uh, this gravitational pull towards covering that and covering it 24-7. Right. And a lot of the smaller topics, some of, I would argue, some of the even the more important issues get buried because they're not necessarily, A, easy to explain and discuss. There's a lot of nuance to them. And they're not sort of that polarizing type topics that we see in sports coverage, whether there be the debate shows or on, you know, Fox News, CNN, where it's basically, you know, one topic is either bad or good. We're going to debate this incessantly over and over again. How do you manage the coverage of it? And, and I think it is become more challenging in this era than ever before.
1: Well, I, I think you bring up a great point because that's the new challenge now. Right. Because. Right. It was so obvious in the Trump era that Trump was so outrageous and sucked up so much oxygen and was such a big force that you had no choice but to cover him. You couldn't ignore him. And everything was about him. What did he say? What's the reaction to that positive and negative? How is that impacting how I mean, since the moment he came down that escalator, everything was about him, even covering the Democratic primaries both in 2016 and 2020, and I was very, very active in both of those and talking to all of the candidates in both of those primaries, half of the time was talking about what Trump just said that day, or who could be the best against Trump, or who would debate Trump the best. So now there's this great sort of reckoning moment for the media. It's like, what do you do now? Because Joe Biden is inherently kind of boring. Right? He's like he does what politicians used to do. He's like very as he's gotten older, he's gotten better at message discipline. Before he was he wasn't so good at message discipline. Now he is. They keep him, you know, away from the cameras most of the time. Almost everybody on his team, from Kamala Harris to the press secretary, Jen Saki to others, are really, really good at talking and saying nothing. <laughs> Which by the way is probably the smart political <laughs> stance, right? Um, Absolutely. So you too much. Trump, by the way thought that was boring and bad TV. He didn't like watching that kind of thing. He knew that's not what the media wants. So he would throw rhetorical bombs in there because he knew that that would get people riled up. Even this past weekend, as we tape this, you know, he was at CPAC making his first speech and he's on the prompter. And you can tell that he realizes that this stuff is boring to the crowd. So he starts going off the prompter because he wants to fire people up. But now you got a team that doesn't do that. So now the question is, so what do you talk about now, right? How do you fill that space? And if the space isn't solely just about Trump, does it give us a chance to have that conversation about climate change that we've been putting off for years? Does it have... Do we have a chance now to finally have that deep dive conversation about homelessness and why are so many people on the streets or what's really going on with our school system or how do we really get out of this coronavirus situation and all these kids that have been remote learning for a year and how do we get them back up? I mean, now there is an opportunity, I think, to actually have those conversations because we're not just in the chaos. Is when you're in the chaos, all you can deal with is the chaos, and like, let me get through the day. And now I'm feeling, even for my own show, that we do have an opportunity. I said to my team, "I'm interesting that you said this just, you know, just yesterday. Like, we finally have a chance to start doing other kinds of shows and start planning other kinds of shows. You know, it was so hard that Trump also was a 24/7 figure." in that you never knew when he was gonna tweet something. He you know, had to go to the bathroom because he had to pee in the middle of the night. All of a sudden it would be a good time to tweet, right? And like all of a sudden, then the morning shows and it changes the whole news cycle. Like, I don't know if Joe Biden has better bladder control or he's just better, or they keep the <laughs> phone away. Like, you don't see that happening. You know, you don't have this bombastic tweet in the middle of the night from Joe Biden. So like he is more of a nine to five Monday through Friday president. Like he comes out, they said to give you a schedule the day before it says what time Joe Biden's going to come out. He comes out at that time. He doesn't stay longer than that. And then he goes about their business. So now there's this other space. And the other interesting thing, frankly, from a political perspective is now everybody else is starting to be viewed in a different light because Trump isn't there. Like you look at this criticism recently of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New Mm -hmm. York, who was seen as a saint, you know, like that they were going to make him, you know, he's like Mother Teresa during the during the the pandemic. He writes a book. Everybody loves him. They're homosexuals. Okay, well, because he was being compared at the time to Donald Trump's, you know, objectively horrible response to the coronavirus. So now you uh, remove Trump and he's just being compared to like Biden's, you know, pretty decent kind of boring response. And it's just Andrew Cuomo, and it's just a spotlight on his problems. That's not a great look for him. And you see some of these other governors, Gavin Newsom under new scrutiny, other people that were that really, you know, in comparison to Trump looked great, now are being looked at in a different light. And as the media itself, which thrives on controversy, and is frankly, a little bored, I think with what's happening with the Biden administration looks for something else to talk about. But it is a moment of, of reckoning. And I think the media really needs to think deeply about where people are at and not just go back to the way things were five years ago. Because as you guys know so well, people are listening to podcasts like this, or people are consuming their information in a different way and thinking about things in a different way. People are going on Clubhouse to hear a big conversation. I mean, there's other ways that people are, are facilitating information. And so, if you just try the old formula, I don't think it's going to work anymore. You know, in sports, we're beyond the 6
0: a.m., 6 p.m. sports center, and that's how I consume my sports. And with digital and social, I'm getting the highlights, I'm getting the scores, I get the results, all that stuff. Right. I, I, I see, and you've certainly been way more progressive in the digital and social space. Um, but I still see the nightly news as half of the show is a regurgitation of what I already saw on Twitter two days ago. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how long that can last. And I'm sort of surprised that it hasn't
1: changed. I mean, I'm at least we're at least seeing SportsCenter Center change their format. Yeah, I do. I do think it's important. Um, and I've made some of those points internally um, that that there has, you know, there is an evolution. I mean, I, I've been working on a show. Um, that we've been doing at seven o'clock every night with uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky, um, called the Fox Eleven News Special Report, a- and we sort of are kind of experimenting with that show as a model potentially for the future. So that show is is kind of like what Scott Van Pelt has done with SportsCenter, which is okay. You know what some of the headlines are. Let's go deeper with some of the people behind the headlines. Let's add analysis, let's add personality, let's add something unique. Let's push some of these newsmakers uh, and hold them accountable and give them a place where they can talk about stuff but then push back on, okay, really why aren't schools opening or why isn't this happening or what more can we do there? And, and so that show is almost entirely off the teleprompter And almost entirely a conversation live in the moment about the biggest, most important story of the day or stories of the day. I think that sort of model is more watchable and more realistic in terms of where people are at. You know, I I, I think that in, in terms of the news, like, I mean, there's nothing can substitute for true breaking news. And that's where we shine and we still have a chopper and we still have ways when things are in crisis to cover stuff that's breaking as it happens um so i i think we need to you know see what's really working in society right now which is long format really strong storytelling is working you look at the success of something like the last dance or you know some of these narratives or the documentary success on on netflix like there is a place for really well told stories And then there also is a place for like, this just happened, it's happening now, let's go on this journey together, whether that be a car pursuit or a riot or whatever it is, like we're in this together. What's hard is that in between, you know, which is like a not that great story. That's kind of a regurgitation of something that happened a few hours ago. And that's where I think too much of local news and news generally has been and I think if we can't get rid of that and change that up, I think the industry is is going to be in a bad place. Um, and so I'm excited about the possibility of what some of that reinvention looks like. Because there's there's no doubt that there's going to be a need for local news. This pandemic showed the need for holding local people accountable and getting important information out there. There's no doubt that humans have a hunger for great storytelling. That goes back to literally cavemen telling stories on the, you know, on the caves. Um, So that's something like from humanity. The question is, what exactly does that format look like and and what's um, a useful way given the way people are processing information?
0: Yeah, I mean, in our our business, we always say content is king, but after hearing you, I'm gonna add those who own a helicopter are king.
2: (laughs) People always were talking about like the past four years, like fake news. And how, and I, it's come an old issue. But at the point, at this point, it's it's really become like conspiracy theory news versus real news. Right. Um, and I, I kind of want to hear your take on like how do you as a reporter take that on, but also as a local reporter take that kind of stuff on because people's minds have gotten warped beyond just fake news. I feel like it's really come almost like not full circle, but like gone gone around. To a whole different bend that you know, like I don't even understand what they're thinking. A lot of them. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, um, some of them are just fucking crazy. (laughs) 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 Like you can't. There's just some people you just can't reach. But I I do think that the the exciting part of of you know the local space more than the cable space, where I think some people are are you're watching because you want your beliefs reinforced and the person that's watching rachel is probably not watching sean ever right unless they like a really want to hate watch so like that so i think what's good about local i think it's one of the few places where there are people that watch from both sides because i think most of our stuff is pretty objective and pretty fact-based and so you do have an opportunity to talk to people that may disagree. One thing I've tried to do on on my show on the issue is if we brought together people on radically different sides, like we had a show recently with Tommy Lahren from Fox Nation, as conservative as it gets, and Brian Tyler Cohen, who's got a million YouTube followers, one of the most progressive people online. And I put them together and it was heated I mean, it got like over a million views on YouTube. It was a big, crazy thing. But what was also kind of cool about it was, one, I made sure that it was civil. And two, it was one of the few times that people that listen to Tommy ever watch, hear the other side of an argument. And one of the few times that people listen to Brian ever get to hear the conservative side of the argument, because usually they just are in echo chambers. Um, So part of what I've tried to do is to try to bring people together to show, one, you can have a conversation. It can be civil, even if your mind isn't totally changed by it, you can realize that the person on the other side is not a horrible human being who deserves to be spat on, right? The the, the biggest problem in our society, we've gone from Uh, having opponents to having enemies (laughs) and those, that's a, that's a problem. Like the, the other side, whatever side it is, has been totally dehumanized. And you look at so much of social media and it's like talking about how you want to see the other person dead, you know? Um, and, and, and so how can we get to a place where we have at least some facts in common so that we can have a conversation? I mean, it's a really tough thing to do. Um, But I think it's an important thing that that we invest in um, because, man, I mean, it is it is bad. And and, and, you know, we have gone from a place where, you know, we're fighting on, you know, I want the tax rate to be thirty nine percent. I want the tax rate to be thirty five percent. Let's meet at thirty seven to I don't even believe in the concept of taxes. (laughs) 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 It's like you can't like find a common ground there. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it's, it's a, it is a, it is a challenge, but a part of it is, is that I got to the point on, on January 6th. I mean, I was, I was at this point beforehand, but I I had a sort of an outburst on January 6th on the air while broadcasting that because I just got so physically irritated at the concept that we all have gone out of our way. With some of this both side ism, you know, well, one side says the election was stolen, the other side says that it wasn't. Well, like, no, there are facts here. Like, one side is lying and making something up, and the other side, it, which is not always truthful, on this time is. And I had done a series of commentaries before January 6th about the fact that what President Trump was saying was not true, and it was dangerous to say all of that. Um, but I think. The media needs to do a better job of expressing the facts, not in a judgmental way, because so often, especially the DC press corps is really snooty and snobby in a way that they're talking down to people, which only alienates people more and makes them hate the media more, but in a a just like fact way. And what I've noticed for my own, I think, you know, the ability to have on you know, have a good relationship with President Trump and Governor Newsom, which I do, and and have been chosen by both of them and interviewed both of them more than any other California journalist. I mean, it's been me doing both of them. And part of it is all about tone. It's about respect. It's about, you know, making it about the facts, but you can do it in a way that's kind and that recognizes each person's humanity. And I think most people are so used to the snotty asshole that's trying to, to have their moment go viral, and are so annoyed with that that just the idea of talking to somebody as a basic human being um, can be like a game changer and a refreshing thing. And it should that should not be the exception to the rule. That should be the rule. To that point, you know
0: the 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 medium, and we talked about this a little bit. With you're doing it kind of on both sides, right? You have sort of the the social media, the YouTube sort of uh, channels. Right. And then the traditional sort of channels. And I have long thought um, it's the format. The format doesn't work. You, you mentioned this sort of kind of reiterating your point of changing the format a little bit. But even this section of shows, you bring on somebody who's on the opposite side and it's like a hit piece, right? Like you're just coming on and it's basically to tear them down in, the, in a soundbite form. You have 10 minutes to have a conversation about climate change. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to get anything done constructively to get a 30-second soundbite. I realize that is how news is structured structured on cable television. Right. But to, to your point earlier, how do we get to a point where the format can allow for a discussion? You know, you can you can say what you want about Joe Rogan's podcast and whatever, if you're into it or not. But when he has a Bernie Sanders on or he has a, a Tulsi Gabbard on, there is a difference in a three-hour discussion, even to the, the debates, right? There's no way you could get to the nuance and the level of understanding. Do they have a real – these politicians that were propping up as presidential candidates have a real true understanding of how to correct this? Or are they just able to work in these 15-second sound bites? So how do we get to this place where those type of discussions can be had? And that way you can also vet these people if they really
1: know what the hell they're talking about. Right. Well, and and especially you think about the debates – at the beginning of the primary cycle where they have like 12 or 14 people on the oh, stage. Oh my God, it's a mess. I mean, I've yeah. moderated congressional debates and other things at local city council races and stuff where there are 12, 14 people on the stage. And it's, it's, you know, but at the same time, it's like, what are you supposed to do? So do you just, you just, all of a sudden, you, this person doesn't get to be on the stage and then that raises other issues. Um, no, I mean, I, I think you raise a great point. It's, but it's like, how do you, but then at the same time, are most people going to sit there and listen to three hours? You know, you know, when most people can't even, you know, I'm, I'm amazed on Twitter that if I tweet out a video, even if it's a 30 second video, how few people will watch the video. They just read the caption about the video and most of them don't even read the video. And most of them can't even make it through the second sentence of the tweet. <laughs> you only got two hundred eighty sure. characters. You don't even make it to sentence two. And all of a sudden they they will sometimes make a comment about something that you said in the second sentence, or why didn't you ask this? And it's like, did you watch the video? Literally on the clip, I asked that. Um, <laughs> and so, so it's like a weird contrast, right? Cause on the one hand you're totally right that we, we need deeper, more nuanced, more complicated conversations with people. But at the same time, people's attention spans have gotten so short um, on a daily basis. It's like people's attention spans have both gotten long and short. Like Joe Rogan is one of the top podcasts out there, yeah. long conversations. Yes. And yet like a TikTok is bad if it goes over eight seconds. You know, like, it's, so it's like a weird thing that's going on. And so how do you find a way in that space? I mean, one thing I've tried to do with with my shows is, I do longer interviews than, than my competitors do. And we do longer interviews on this seven o'clock show than most places do. Do I wish they were longer? I, I do wish that they were longer, but I have offered and, and we've done, you know, my, my show is 22 minutes long. I wish it was longer. I, I, I If the network's listening to this, I hope they, they give me more time. But um, I will at least give, you know, there's a big difference between a 22 minute interview and a six minute interview. And you can get a lot more in with somebody in that phrase. And, and and what what I've done with that extra time, if I do get that extra 10 minutes or something that I found to be successful for, for me and, and our space that's different, is I try to really humanize and personalize uh, a lot of these politicians and get them off of their talking points. So some of that is talking about pop culture and what they like. Some of it is talking about their families. Some of it is talking about, you know, sports or other things. To get to to see a different side of who they are to, to let them relax to let them feel like they're they they can be open in a different way and then I think you do get more of a sense of who that person is in terms of their soul because in reality a lot of these Democrats or Republicans that run in the primaries they all pretty much agree on the same things with, with a few exceptions and some notable exceptions like on healthcare reform. I want universal healthcare. I want a process to universal healthcare, which by the way, neither is going to get anyways. So it's like, it's a lot of it is who is the person? What is their character about? Is this somebody you trust? Is this somebody you think has the right thing in mind? And I think we also need to spend some time trying to figure out who these people are and and get off the just same old, I'm going to redo this same talking point, go through the script. And it's been interesting to see some politicians that really works with, and some really are very uncomfortable with that because they're so used to being so processed. Yeah, yeah Andrew Yang was the one that
0: also, like, you know, you start to you hear the, the the talking points or the UBI and things that that he wants to cover as part of his platform. But when you get to hear the rationale behind it, it gives you a completely different thought process. And uh, yeah, you're exactly right. And how do you?
1: He's also, I I did more interviews with him than anybody else in California. And he was like a regular on our show. I, I, yeah, I love
0: it. What did you you think
1: about him? And and he's Andrew Yang is one of my all time favorite guests for a lot of reasons. First off, he's, um, he doesn't follow the talking points. He actually answers questions. He has interesting things to say that is not like orthodoxy and he's thought through problems. He's very forward thinking in terms of what he's looking at. He's, you know forecasting things that are going to happen years down the road. Um, And so a conversation with him is not so much what some of the politicians are, which is, I say this, you say that, this attack here, this here, and it feels like you're sort of role-playing in like a tennis match where you know where it's going to go. Like Andrew Yang is like a real conversation where you actually get into stuff, and that makes him a much more interesting interview. I mean, I, I really enjoyed talking with Pete Buttigieg. We had some great conversations. Um, he's a little bit more scripted than Andrew Yang, but also just really thoughtful and and has, you know, thought through issues in a deep way. Bernie uh, Sanders was, wh- I did more interviews with him than anybody else. And, and we really connected. I mean, he's so different than the other two, um, but he loves really delving into policy. And he's so used to pop, a reporter's not doing that, and when you do go into the actual issues, he's so grateful for that that he'll give you a lot and really dig into stuff. And then there are other people that are that are less giving in <laughs> interviews. D- is there anybody on the other side? You named, you know,
0: three Democrats there. Is there anybody on the other side that you feel has some of that same um, a pr- approach, a new sort of ideological thinking about?
1: politics about what we can do in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've, I've enjoyed my conversation so far with Kevin Faulkner, who's running for governor of California. He's uh, the former mayor of San Diego. Um, he tried a very different approach on homelessness, which was basically to ban people from sleeping on the streets and to set up shelters. He's got a, a he's a moderate Republican. Um, He's had success in terms of governing. He comes with different ideas of how he wants to go about it and has been very respectful in his conversation um, with us. And so I enjoy that sort of thing. I mean, um, probably one of my all-time favorite interviews is with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who we've done a series with. Um, I mean, there's nobody quite like him. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger has gotten to the level in his life of, I don't give a fuck, that like very few people ever achieve. (laughs) to be that rich and successful and powerful. Um, but he's also, you know, enjoys a good conversation. And uh, I, I know a lot of Republicans would not really consider him that much of a Republican these days, um, but he certainly has some, you know, conservative principles as well. Um, but he certainly has some, you know, conservative principles as well.
2: Yeah, that video he did after um, after the six was 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 probably one of the more powerful ones Um, responding to it
1: yeah yeah and we've we've developed a good relationship and I've done a a lot of stuff with him and done work with him at, at his USC Schwarzenegger Institute at USC right before the pandemic almost a year ago exactly I was with him and Kevin Faulkner and Ben Carson, the Secretary of Housing, and many of the Democratic leaders, because Schwarzenegger's whole thing at the USC Institute is to bring together Republicans and Democrats, and let's actually have a conversation about some of these issues. He did one virtually about the issue of race too. And I I appreciate that he's doing a lot of what you guys have been talking about, which is how do we just even freaking talk about this stuff with somebody else? And that's really what he's involved with. and, And I've hosted some of that. and Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Do you believe we're also in sort of this awkward point in our history? You know, America isn't that old. And we're also have come accustomed to the way politicians work and the way government is structured and also society. And we're now starting to see maybe some of the older folks who have been, you know, in politics for years, career politicians, they're starting to kind of move their way out, whether it's on their, by choice or by just age. Um, And then what we're talking about, Andrew Yang, and seeing what's happening in cryptocurrency and even the GameStop thing and sort of these revolutions by the younger generation that is going to potentially mold and shape the new direction of what this country looks like. And maybe we're just in this awkward time where the old guard doesn't want to give up. They have these ways. They're not moving on. And a younger guard is starting to rise
1: and sort of believe in something different and new. Although, don't you think we've seen some of that in every generation? I mean, there were people in the yeah. 60s that were... Uh, what, what I do think, we're, I, I think that's a really good and smart point. I, I think we also are at this demographic crossroads in, in this country, where you see that we are headed towards a time of being a minority, a majority country, uh, where the, the demographics, the power dynamics of that are shifting. And there are portions of this country that are really threatened by that and that are very uncomfortable by that. And if you look at, you know, Donald Trump's appeal, you know, Fareed Zakaria, I just listened to a podcast, described it as, you know, his basic appeal was, he said, you know, the Chinese uh, have taken away your factories, the Mexicans have taken away your jobs, and the Muslims are going to kill you, and I'm going to make America great again. You know, it was, and so he did, you know, now I don't know if I totally 100% go into all that, but but that is, I think, a a way of sort of thinking about some of the the real white resentment that you see that's happening now because of the dramatic demographic changes, and that, and I don't know if there is Donald Trump without, you know, social media and Rush Limbaugh and everything else that set it up in terms of the Republican side, but I also don't know if there's if Donald Trump exists if there wasn't a black president right before. You know, and, and that there was this every for every, you know, Barack Obama has, has said in his podcast with, with Bruce Springsteen, which is great, by the way, um, that, you know, the, the, the bending of the moral arc is not a straight line. You know, you, you step forward, you step back. And I, and I think there is a real um, friction point that's happening in our country right now with a group of people that feel threatened. That feel like their uh, religious way of life that their economic way of life that their cultural values are being threatened um and that the quote-unquote woke left is going too far and it's too much and that there is a pushback to that um and maybe the woke left is going too far and it's too much and and maybe there's you know and, and it's interesting that joe biden who is was the most moderate of of probably all of the Democrats that was running, maybe Pete Buttigieg, but, you know, Pete Buttigieg was a young gay guy. Joe Biden is an old, you know, white guy who's been around forever. (laughs) And that was less threatening to people. Um, One, and that side of the Democratic Party won. um, And, 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 but I, I, I don't think we, and, and so some of that is cultural and demographic and some of it also is age wise, Because you look at the way that not our generation, the millennials, but the Gen Z look at, even there was a study last week about the way that they look at sexuality and how the percentage of them that identify as bisexual is like 16%, whereas older people, it's like two, you know, that's, it's a different way of just seeing the world entirely. And as our generation, the millennials, and as Gen Z gets to be more powerful and more voting, um, you're going to see some dramatic changes while also, you know, Latinos and African Americans and others, their power increases.
0: It's a great way of looking at. um, I think I agree totally. I think there's a lot of factors probably into what we're seeing now, why it is the way things are starting to unravel a little bit and and sort of at these, um, certainly these friction points, as you put it. To, To go on a lighter note, what has surprised you from being a host and an interviewer to a guest you've had that you didn't expect it to go as well as it did or be as insightful or as interesting
1: as it uh, turned out to be? Ooh, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, we, I, I, I was surprised that like, we ended up having like a good, Dynamic with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is kind of wild and weird. <laughs> We've been trying to get him for years, and I went to this event in uh, in um, Bakersfield that they said if you come and cover this in Bakersfield, then we may do your show. And so I drove all the way to Bakersfield and covered him, and and drove all the way back. And they said, "All right, he's going to come in, but we're only giving you ten minutes." And I'm like, I want 20 minutes so I can do the whole show. And and they're like, well, you've got 10 minutes. And I'm like, I'm just going to keep him talking and keep him going. And you could tell he was having a good time. And at the end, when I was like really comfortable and I had gotten everything, I had gotten over 20 minutes, I had extra content. I'm like, I'm just going to push it. Right. And so I said, can, will I just go for it. And so I said, as I finished the whole thing off, I'm like, Governor. You know, I need to throw to a commercial break, and and I don't know—is there some phrase about like returning or going? You know, something that you might know that maybe you could help me with. Anyway, you could toss to this commercial break for me. Eddie's like, Eddie's like, I there are a few. One is sorry. Uh, one of them is get to the chopper, and they like he's like does all, of that <laughs> and then he ends it with I'll be back. And I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like we might as well just end the show here. <laughs> like that doesn't, doesn't get any cooler than that. Um, so that was a surprise. From I don't know if he's we're even going to get a full segment with him. To uh, we have him doing Terminator taglines as our uh, as our station IDs. right so that was that was pretty cool
0: <laughs> well let, let, let me ask you this it, from you you go to the both ends and we've talked about the crossover now and how you know you know shut up and dribble doesn't exist right um same similar question but from an athlete who have you interviewed and what have you gained from that interview that you didn't think was there and something or or someone that stood out as far as one of your
1: interviews yeah I mean, and I think from a, from an, you know a, the previous generation, I, I think Magic Johnson is one of the most like impressive people in terms of what he has done uh, off the court in terms of business, in terms of lifting people up. I mean, he's just a, an amazing figure that's really inspiring to be around, and I think is a case study um, for a lot of people. Um, And and now, though, I mean, I I do think, you know, LeBron is a real force um, and what he's done is really incredible. And and I think he has become such a leader in basketball and that his colleagues really look to him for guidance and have I think he's made it more okay to do a lot of the activism work and made that feel cool or made that feel almost like the expectation um, and, and I think that that's had a real impact. Um, you know, I mean, there was an amazing statistic during the bubble that like, was it like 10% of the guys were even registered to vote or something? I mean, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was very low. Um, that, that voting was not a part of the culture. It was not something that they did. It was not something that they were brought into. And to see that changing, um, is really something. And, and it is not an overstatement, um, to say that, you know, black voters, are the reason that Joe Biden got the nomination um, and are the reason that he got, he won the presidency. I mean, they, they, they were the difference in Georgia, you know, they were the difference in, in various States that you, you see the change that is coming. And I do think that, you know, the NBA guys, the NFL guys, all of these guys that are seen as super important, super masculine, super dominant super impressive, super wealthy, super successful figures saying, this is the cool thing to do. Join me. This is cool. Um, I think is really important for that community. And you are seeing a a shift. And I think that's a fact, not the only factor. I mean, there's hard work by people like Stacey Abrams and other people on the ground that are really putting on the work. But I think that they're lending their name to that is is making a difference. And I think it also, when it becomes their turn to, um, get the uh, the vaccine. Um, I think images of a LeBron James getting the vaccine or all these other guys for a, a community that's historically been um, suspicious of vaccines, I think will make an impact too.
2: I think it's given um, a voice to women athletes more than they had before, which, which they should have always had. And um been able, they've been able to I mean black women are probably a big reason why Biden won as well. Um obviously and, Stacey Abrams and everything but also but Kelly left also WNBA long. player.
1: And, yes. And, and Kelly yeah. Leffler, owner yeah. of a WNBA team who didn't like her and didn't He's support gone. her and, and basically boycotted her. And you know that that was not helpful to her either. Um yeah, I mean you see that this this uh you know a, in the last few years between me too and and between George Floyd, I think you have seen this increase in power for women and for black people at the same time. And of course the WNBA is both mostly, I mean, most of who is in the WNBA is both. And so for them to be able to lead and, and for, you know, Serena Williams to be such a powerful figure uh, of leadership in in her space as well um, I think is, is really great. And, And I, and I, and whether we see the impact, Immediately, what I, I do think we'll see an impact years down the road of little girls that saw Kamala Harris or saw Serena Williams or saw Renee Montgomery and and were able to see themselves in a potential position of power, and twenty years from now that could have an impact. Just like you know, we all re- reflected so much on Tiger Woods recently that basically everybody in golf right now, every star in golf right now is there because of Tiger Woods, right? Uh, because it's been long enough where, you know, he, since he came in there. And I think that that's going to come years from now. And, and that's a, what an amazing legacy to have.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned LeBron. Um, what is the LA sports landscape like right now with the Lakers, the Clippers, the Dodgers, Matt Stafford's in town. Right. I mean, what is the landscape like? And I would assume it's always going to be a Lakers town. But are things kind of shifting around? I mean, what's your take on on the landscape?
1: You didn't mention the Chargers because nobody else does either. Uh, <laughs> poor Chargers.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was intentional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan <laughs> of Justin
1: Good Herbert. So. Yeah, we got we got some great, yeah. <laughs> you know, soccer teams. We got the LAFC and we got the Galaxy and we got the uh, the USC Trojans. My Trojans heading to the NCAA tournament and. And OK, we get it. It's an embarrassment of riches for We're us in the East Coast. We don't here. have that. Good time. <laughs> uh, and and we got the yeah, we got the Ducks and the Kings. And, um, no, it's a, it's a look. I mean, in L.A. L.A. is like Lakers, Dodgers. And then there is just a mountain drop off, you know. Um, and, and this year, both those teams won and won within like two weeks of each other. And of course it was the one time when we weren't allowed to celebrate, but everybody said, screw it. We've waited so long. Anyways, they went into the streets and we saw a dramatic increase in coronavirus that health officials directly tie into the Lakers and (laughs) Dodgers, uh, because people wanted to celebrate, but it is, it is a moment of, of, uh, of great riches and it's a moment. I think that, um, you know, man, it would be so great. I mean, we, we have this beautiful stadium and SoFi stadium, um, the biggest, most expensive stadium in the NFL and not a single fan has not been able to go inside of it yet uh, because it opened in the middle of a pandemic. It's going to be the home of the Super Bowl next year, uh, which we're excited about, excited to go see Matthew Stafford and see what happens with the Rams. But, um, LA is a Laker town. I mean, I feel for the Clippers. I, 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 I don't view. I don't think it's bad to be a Laker and Clipper fan. I know I'm totally in the minority there. Most people say you have to pick one or the other. I say when they face off in the finals, uh, the Western Conference Finals, then you have to pick, and, you know, God knows that's never happened before. Um, but, you know, the Lakers have 17 titles, and the Clippers have never been to the Western Conference Finals. So to even compare them in terms of franchises is unfair to both franchises. Um, L.A. is a Laker town. L.A. loves the Dodgers. Um you know true blue i mean and and you think about you know especially la which is um 60% latino um baseball is so big in that community and and the bleachers at dodger stadium is like such an iconic place and um so that's a really big thing in la and everything else is is you have to win consistently to even be noticed um because the thing about la sports as compared to so many other cities Um, is there so many other options? Not only do we have two teams for every sport, so you can, you know, literally root for another team in the same league. Um, but it's, you know, beautiful outside and there's so many other things to do that if you're not winning, um, you know, nobody, nobody cares. Um, and, and it's, so it's, it's a, it's a different kind of sports landscape than um, anywhere else. And LA fans would not have as much, um, patience as Knicks fans have had over the years.
2: <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh God. Knicks fans are not patient because they just they just keep on wanting to make trades that are terrible and, and continue the, the terrible you know uh, trajectory of this uh, franchise. No, I think it's also been you know you guys kind of deserved it after after you know losing um, losing Kobe. I mean that, that that I heard my friends who were out there said that it just like was you know it 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 was heartbreaking for the whole you know. Um, for everyone, I'm sure, I mean, obviously, you were you covering it on air when, when that happened? Um, oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, no. I was brought in. I mean, I was, I, it was on a Sunday morning. I was brought in. Uh, I got a call and then had to go rush into the station. I was on air 15 minutes later. I lived three minutes from the station. And um, we were on for 10 hours straight that day and and covered most of that for the next month. I, I Our sports anchor was in Miami for the Super Bowl, which was that same week. So when the Lakers played their first game without, um, after Kobe's death, um, they, I asked if I could go be the sports anchor and and anchor from there. So I was in Staples center and, um, with the Lakers when they came back and LeBron made an emotional speech. And, and then I got one of the press tickets to go cover the memorial service and was inside Staples center for that. Um, and it was, uh, It was one of the only, you know, times in in my professional career where you're really told not to cry, where everybody cried. Um, And all of these seasoned, you know, veteran reporters who I looked up to and watched for years were all crying together. Um, It was such a gut punch to the city in in a way that, you know, nobody's death has been in my lifetime. Um, it was just, it was just the, one of the most devastating things because Kobe had become such a symbol of excellence to every part of our community and our community is very all over the map, but he, I think uniquely for a lot of different reasons from played to the wealthy old white guy to, you know, the black guy, to the Latino community, to the Asian community, like he had every community had a reason to love Kobe. And um, and there was a collective grief in this city that unlike anything that's ever happened before, and then like a week or two after that, um, the whole city shut down. So Kobe's uh, memorial service was the last, which happened just you know a, a year ago this past week, um, 224 was the day of it, um, was the last major event that Los Angeles was able to come together for.
2: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you think? All right. Just last question. Do you think he should be a logo?
1: No. I don't. I don't no? agree. I don't totally. think I agree with the logo. I, I think uh, uh, Kobe was great and an amazing player, but so is Jerry West. I mean, I think we're, we're so focused on our, our, in the moment and everything is the greatest because it just happened. That I think we as a society also don't take enough time to appreciate, you know, where we came from. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made um, that Jerry West is is the greatest Laker of all time, not just for his um, contributions on the court, but his contributions as a general manager. I mean, coach really, him, the village, Bryant literally would not be on the Lakers without Jerry right. West making a trade for Vladi Divak. I mean, what was that one of the greatest trades of all time or what? I mean. They got a flopper and we got the great, you know, (laughs) that Jerry, you pick up one three, that summer, Jerry West, you know, signed Shaquille O'Neal and, uh, and, and traded for Kobe Bryant and set up, you know, Jerry West was a part of the Showtime Lakers with magic and Kareem and everybody else. Jerry West is partly responsible for the Warriors. uh, Great success. I mean, you think about what Jerry West has done over the series of like, five or six decades, he's really at the center of, of many of the greatest teams in the history of the league. So to just like blow that off. Um, and for, I mean, Kobe's great and Kobe, you know, deserves to be memorialized too. But yeah. I might be old guy, get off my long pipe. I know. Gonna... Well, well, but I mean, it's like one thing if, if Jerry West was like some, horrible, racist, anti-Semite from another era who we need to like pretend like doesn't exist, which happens with some things. And it's like, we move on and we change, but Jerry West isn't that. (laughs) You know, like, no, it, that makes, that makes sense. I, I, yeah, I, totally I know, but that. I'm like a Laker historian who reads like old books about the Lakers. Like that's my, like, so I don't, I don't know if I'm the, necessarily the greatest representative there. Like there's another argument that the greatest Laker of all time is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but he's such an asshole to most people in the media that nobody ever wants to admit that. But if you look at the guy's statistics. Or the greatest player of all time. Yeah. I mean, his yeah. statistics are unbelievable what he achieved. And yet he's almost never in the conversation just because most people don't like him.
0: Well, Alex, tell us where we can find you on social media. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, but let's tell everybody where we can find your great work and obviously your YouTube channel.
1: Sure. So it's at Alex Michelson. That's Alex with an E, not with an A. -A E-L-E-X-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-O-N in every social media except on Twitter where somebody somehow took that name. So it's Alex underscore Michelson on Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to any interaction with people and, and I'd love to have a conversation there and welcome the comments.
0: That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information.